Is it time? It's time. Okay. Um, so we have we're ludicrously we're ludicrously far behind. Not in the sense of you aren't doing the reading, as I'm sure you will demonstrate on your exam. You are carefully, every word, thoughtfully, wide awake. It's all great. Um, and there's more than a month for you to, if, if there's a sentence or two that you may have read too quickly, for you to be able to um, reread. Um, but I do, I do remind you there's an exam. There are also papers due today. Um, if, you're not, if you've decided to memorize, can you let your section leader know? Um, just so that we know who's doing what. Um, if you memorize, as I mentioned before, um, you can take um, t you, you can you can take another month or so to finish memorizing, depending on how anxious you are about how you do on your second project, um, either paper or memorization. Um, if you don't have your papers and haven't gotten an extension officially from either of us, um, don't you don't even have to worry about asking us if you get them in by Friday um, and Monday. Level a little. Uh, you can take till Monday without um, having to um, inform us that you need an extension. If you need beyond Monday, let us know. Um, and as I say, if you're going to do the memorization, let us know. Um, I decided if you're still on the fence about a memorization or writing a paper, that you could also, if you want, memorize out of the cradle endlessly rocking. Um, so that gives you one more option. Um, I don't think that's the easiest of the um, possible memorizations. Um, but it's totally great, so you could do that. Or you could memorize the Divinity School address, um, but that would be a little bit harder. Um, worth it. It would, it would be there for you all your life, and it would be a rebuke to you all your life telling you that you shouldn't have spent your time memorizing the Divinity School address, but um, thought, about, thought your own thoughts, which is what the Divinity School address is telling you to do. Um, okay, what we're going to do today, what we're going to do this week, I feel like there's a little bit more that I want to say about um, the Aspirin papers and a lot more that should be said about Mrs. Dalloway. And um, it might be that um, I could just do a sort of um, mention of a couple of things from both of those. Um, so here's what I would mention, and this is stuff you can think about if you want for a third paper, um, which can be about anything. It'll, it will be a research paper. We will talk about this. It can be about anything in the course. That is, it's not part three of the course as the second paper is part two of the course. You can write about any of the authors that we do. So this is stuff that you might um, consider or wish to consider in more detail for a third paper. Um, and again, there'll be a research component in that paper. Um, so the thing, one thing more to say about the Aspirin papers um, is that one major question that you should ask, a question that we um, approached a little bit in talking about what the hidden um, revelation hinted at in the papers is. There's, the papers are interesting in general because they're the papers of Jeffrey Aspern and um, we worship him. And because we worship him, we want every scrap of anything that had anything to do with him. 
But on the other hand, at a particular moment, um, there's a strong hint that there's one very particular thing in the papers of interest. Um, if that is true, um, you can probably figure out what it is. You can figure out what it is not because you'll ever know, but because there's only one thing that it could be if it's anything. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that there are certain kinds of quizzes or puzzles where part of the quiz or puzzle, one of the clues is that the puzzle is solvable. Um, that is itself a clue to the solution of the puzzle. If you didn't know for sure that the puzzle was solvable, um, then you wouldn't have enough clues to solve it. But if you are told, here is a solvable or a soluble puzzle, then the very fact that you know that it's solvable gives you the last piece of information that you need. Um, the Aspirin Papers probably works the same way. It certainly belongs to a genre of fiction that works that way, which is to say that it tells you that there is one particular thing in the papers that um, will be of very great interest. And the only thing that could be of very great interest to a reader of the Aspirin Papers, the only thing that we could know that we don't, that isn't just, oh, Aspirin was a poet, oh, Aspirin lived in Venice, oh, Aspirin is dead, um, all of those things we know. We also know that he and um, Miss Juliana had plenty of sex, that it really mattered to her, um, that they had a very strong romantic relationship. So, Hannah, were you going to say something about what was solvable? Oh, it looked like you... Okay, so there's only one place, one missing piece in the puzzle that is the Aspirin Papers. There's a whole lot. If you think of the Aspirin Papers as like a jigsaw puzzle of Venice... Um, there's a whole lot of Venice that you don't see in that jigsaw puzzle. There's a whole lot of, there's a lot that we don't know. We don't know where they live in Venice. We don't know, as I said before, the name of the narrator, the false name of the narrator. We don't know how um, he met Mrs. Prest or what his relationship to Mrs. Prest is in life. There's tons of stuff that we don't know that it doesn't matter that we don't know. But there is one missing piece right in the middle of the puzzle. And because it's a missing piece right in the middle of the puzzle, we know its shape, as we do when, there's, when we're doing a jigsaw puzzle and there's only one piece left. Even if you don't have the piece, you know the shape of the piece. So the one missing piece in the Aspirin Papers is what is in the papers that's important that we don't know. And it only has one shape. And that shape is all we need to know. Does anyone want to guess? Does anyone have a possible solution? Yes, <laughs> you do want. Yes. Oh, I have no idea what's exactly left field. But it's... Go. Left field is 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 um, better than right field. Is it, <laughs> is it possible that um, Miss Tita might be his daughter, Aspen's daughter? Yes. Right. So it's, it is possible, it's almost forced on you once you see it, that she is his daughter. And then who is her mother? Yeah. So the one thing that you can guess 
as the truth that we will never have confirmed for us, but there is only one possible truth that is offered that we can't have confirmed for us, is that they are not aunt and niece, but mother and daughter. And that Miss Tina or Miss Tita does not know that, presumably, um, and is not ever going to um, know that unless she actually reads the papers. But she doesn't. She burns them. Um, were she to read them, she would be shocked. But I think we can know that that's the secret. And um, one of the great things that James does is to give us a secret that we can guess at by its shape and guess at because it's fiction. If it were a true story, we couldn't possibly guess what the secret was. The secret might be that Jeffrey Aspern was a murderer, or the secret might be that Jeffrey Aspern actually plagiarized all his work, or the secret might be that Jeffrey Aspern was actually a time traveler from the future who had come back into the past with a copy of Jeffrey Aspern's work and then published it, but that's because there are any number of secrets. But because it's fiction, that's the only secret can be. Yes? So why is it such a big secret? Well, because... It doesn't really matter that she's her daughter. It matters in the 19th century. It matters that she's illegitimate. It matters that um, she was somehow... I mean, we can, we can produce a generic, and the more 19th century fiction you know, the easier it is to produce this. But you can produce the generic narrative that James is not giving us to fill in that blank. So it would be something like she is the um, illegitimate daughter of the two of them, um, that um, in order to prevent that illegitimacy from somehow um, ruining her career and her status and her reputation, um, she is described instead as the niece. Um, she is told, and other people are told, we can guess, that her parents have died and that her aunt, therefore, um, had to raise her. So the point is, the obscurity, her origins are obscure, but the obscurity of her origins um, are, her origins are, are intentionally obscured by her mother, who is treating her as something like her orphaned niece. And uh, Miss Tina doesn't know this. Um, and presumably, the narrator doesn't know it either. Um, and the reason they don't know it is their world is real for them. The reason we do know it is because it's a fictional world for us. How many people agree that that's really there? <laughs> sort of. Um, unless you can come up with something else, you have to ask, why is there a secret that we're not told unless we're actually being told what the secret is? Um, secrets don't, it's not the content of a secret that matters so much as the fact that it is a secret, which is its content. The content of the secret is that it has to be a secret. And if you ask what has to be a secret in the Aspirin Papers, there's only room in that story, given what that story is about, there's only room for one answer. One way to get there, or one way to get from there, depending on which direction you go, um, is to say that the other thing that Miss Border or Miss Juliana is doing, that she knows that um, she is working on from the start, is she knows we could say, now I'm going to say this um, 
a little bit more strongly than it should be said, but um, it's certainly a strong possibility. And James wants it to be a strong possibility. We don't know for sure, um, but we know that something like this is true. Um, the strongest way of putting what is certainly true, and maybe this is too strong a way, maybe not, but the strongest way of putting what is certainly true is that Miss Juliana knows what the narrator is after from the start. That is, from the start, she is looking and she is playing a game. And the game is to trade the papers for the narrator marrying Miss Tina or Miss Tita. That is what she's aiming at from the start. She is not fooled. You can say, of course, that Miss Tina or Miss Tita is fooled until, of course, the narrator tells her what he's interested in and reveals himself progressively, but does reveal himself. But the next time you read it, and I hope you'll read it once a year for the rest of your life because it's worth it and will make your life better. Um, the next time you read it, just look at it from Miss Juliana's point of view. Look at it from Miss Borgero's point of view. And you will see that at no point is the wool pulled over her eyes. The lampshade, maybe, or the eye shade, maybe. The wool, no. And if you read it from her point of view and read it as something that she's known from the start, read it as a kind of usual suspects sort of novel, because that's what James writes. The more James you read, the more you'll see that that's the way he writes. If you read it in that way, um, you will see the game she is playing, and she's a much better player of the game than the narrator is. The narrator, she's so good at it, the narrator has no idea that she's so good at it, has no idea that she's playing it at all. But on a second or subsequent reading, you will see that that's so. So that's one um, thing that I wanted you to um, notice about the Aspirin Papers. Um, just to talk a little bit about um, Mrs. Dalloway and about um, modernism in general. Um, so what both Joyce and Wolfe are doing um, in the way they do free indirect discourse, I actually wanted to read to you um, an amazing session. Some of you will know if you took um, film from me that eh, I'm not going to. I'm going to find it now. Um, No, I'm not. Um, that the way human thinking works is our thinking is chaotic. Um, and the chaos of thought is takes the form, it's been described this way since the 18th century, is the association of ideas. What happens in our minds is that um, thoughts pop up. Um, Freud calls this the preconscious. There's a constant stream of possible words, possible observations, possible um, um, perceptions that are vying for our attention. Freud talks about early Freud. Um, Freud will later change this. So if you know about the ego, the id, and the superego, this is not what I'm talking about. Um, earlier, before Freud comes up with the idea of ego, id, and superego, Freud has another tripartite view of the mind. Um, the two parts that we all know about are the conscious mind and the unconscious mind. Um, but Freud, very importantly, has a third 
category called the pre-conscious mind. So the mind is divided into the conscious mind, the unconscious mind, and the pre-conscious. Um, and what the pre-conscious is, is just an endless streaming supply of material for consciousness. What the pre-conscious is, is the background and the extraordinarily busy background of possible thoughts in our mind. In one sense, they are thoughts because they're there, and the only place they are is in our minds. We're perceiving things, we're noticing things. That wall is white, that wall is a kind of yucky maroon. Um, the shades are closed, there's, um, the floor is unusually clean for this room. Um, all sorts of things like that, just stuff all around you all the time, most of which you filter out. But it's not that you're filtering out because, oh no, that reminds me of having sex with my mother. It's you filter it out because it's not what you're um, focusing on. The part that doesn't get filtered out is what comes to the conscious mind. So the pre-conscious mind is not stuff that we're unconscious of, um, but it's not stuff that we're conscious of either. It's stuff that is potentially there for consciousness. It's stuff that resides in extreme short-term memory so that we are aware of it but we forget about it almost instantaneously. It's there and gone, there and gone, there and gone. It's the chaos of the way thought works before we express our thoughts, before we formulate our thoughts. So you could say it's pre-formulated. It's thought before formulation. It's the material of thought rather than thought formulated. If you're going to write in free indirect discourse, if you're going to try to work out how a person is actually thinking, one of the things that a writer will do is um, and Wolf, more than anyone, more even than Joyce and Ulysses, one of the things that a writer will do is pay attention to thoughts at an earlier point than most narrators pay attention to thoughts. What narrative tends to do is to take a character who is attentive to his or her own thoughts, a character who knows and is aware of their thinking. And what Wolf is doing, and doing I think much better than Joyce does in Ulysses, what Wolf is doing is looking at thoughts you could say below the surface, before they break the surface of the ground into the mind, and looking at the roots of thoughts. And what she's looking at are thoughts before they congeal and gel into thoughts, and then looking at how some of them do congeal or gel into thoughts. So when you're following Mrs. Dalloway's thinking, when you're following um, anyone's thinking in Mrs. Dalloway, what you're doing is you're getting very brief flickers of possible thoughts, some of which then turn into actual thoughts, thoughts that you could say Mrs. Dalloway would remember 
if you asked her what she was thinking about when she heard Big Ben or what she was thinking about when they saw majesty in the street. Um, thoughts which are remembered later on in the day versus the millions of thoughts that people have every day that you don't remember thinking at all. And Wolf is extremely good at showing, at picking a way through a landscape, first in a single mind, in which the thoughts that are kind of hooking onto each other or hooking onto forgotten thoughts from earlier in the day start cohering into the sense of the the sense of the day when it's over. Everything in the dead and everything in Mrs. Dalloway, you could say, converges on a point where the two things that are similar about those two works is that here's death at a party. So there's a party and there's death. Mrs. Dalloway's great thought, here's death at my party. Um, how astonishing that is. The dead ends with the party is over and there was a song and it turns out that song without Gabriel knowing it, that song was death at his aunt's party. Um, the song that Greta was so moved by. That's because death was there at the party. So death, as Henry James said in his last words, his last words were, here it is at last, the distinguished thing. That's death, the distinguished thing. So that distinguished thing, that you think about. We don't think about death long, but when we think about it, we do think about it. Um, as John Ashbery said in a poem of his called Fear of Death, um, I think about it. That's how he begins the poem. Um, how could you not? So there's death at the party. Thoughts converge. The thoughts that converge, converge on the end of all thought. But then there's everything else. Um, everything that is life, which is the booming, buzzing confusion, as Henry James's brother William James famously um, defined your first perception of the world as a baby, a booming, buzzing confusion, and that booming it's also William James, by the way, who coined the term the stream of thought, which then later got turned into the stream of consciousness. Um, but it was, that's an idea out of William James. Um, but all that buzzing confusion, that sense of everywhere-ness, all of that um, gets focused when we have thoughts and gets more and more focused the more and more focused our thoughts are. And one of the things that both Joyce and Wolf are um, doing is saying one thing that will really concentrate the mind is the thought of death. One thing that will really bring thoughts into consciousness is the thought of the absolute and eternal end of consciousness. And so life is everything. Life is the fact that there's so much in the world and it's always buzzing around you. And that's a party. That's what parties are. So if life is a party, then the kind of streaming of pre-conscious possibility, the endlessness of the possibility of things to think about is something that the kind of, of um, wild associationalism that Wolf 
um, imitates, that Wolf depicts, that Wolf finds in the human mind, um, and depicts so powerfully, that's what Mrs. Dalloway is going to be about. Septimus Warren Smith is a person who thinks really hard about just a very few things. He can't get away from those things that he's thinking hard about. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, everything to him means the same thing. So everything he sees and everything he does is grist for the same mill. And what that means is that the preconscious is the realm of absolute possibility. Um, there's nothing that, if you um, are open to it, can't draw your attention away from whatever bad track it's going down. Um, there's always something, some other possibility. There's always something more. Um, and that, for Wolf, is what a party is meaning. That's, what, so that's why parties mean life. Um, what they mean, not that Mrs. Dalloway's party is so great, but, what, but it's good enough. Um, it's a party. But what parties mean is possibility. And the more possibility there is, the less you can say there's only one puzzle piece left, and it's got the shape of death. Um, what it means is there's just resplendent myriads of puzzle pieces, and all of them are interesting. And all of them can take you anywhere. And the possibility of going anywhere that's what's great. And for Wolf, that possibility is um, a depiction of something that can only be the thought of the writer or the reader rather than simply the thoughts of characters because Wolf expands the association of ideas from something that happens in a single mind to something that happens from mind to mind. That is, that Mrs. Dalloway is thinking about something and Big Ben starts sounding or the light changes or the traffic is loud or whatever happens. And because something has happened that's noticeable, other people have their attention drawn to that too. And she will just very smoothly, Wolf will very smoothly just get us into someone else's mind. And Mrs. Dalloway thinks about how that happens thinks about the fact, um, to use one of her metaphors, that um, it's as though the mind is draped over the branches of many, many trees and that they're all interlocking and, inter and, and intersecting. Um, and that possibility of not even staying in one person's preconscious, but in the preconscious as something that can be shared in a world that is always offering itself to our interest. Most of the time and most of the things that it offers to us, we turn down, but it's always offering itself to our interest. That's what um, she's doing, what Wolf is doing in showing London, in showing that day, that June day in London, as a place where the possibilities extend in all directions, everywhere. Um, in her mind, in the minds of her readers, these do occur. This is a mental space. But it's not a mental space within the novel. The novel itself 
is a mental space. The reading of the novel, the writing of the novel, is the mental space that makes this happen. Um, Courtney, does that jibe with your view? Okay. Um, I, I defer to Courtney and Mrs. Dalloway. Um, so I just don't want to be saying things that are false. Um, or not too many things that are false. Um, so I think that um, the thing to see about what's hard about it is also that it's what's great about it. That what you should be doing in some sense in reading that kind of depiction of thought is getting that what it's about is the exuberant liveliness of thought. Um, that life means, again to quote John Ashbery, life means moving on and standing still is death. And standing still is means that you stop and focus. And when you stop and focus, the most focal the, the person who will focus most is Septimus Warren Smith. And um, that focus is the um, the the um, exclusion, you could say, of all the multiplicity and all the variety of life. Um, Kafka has a parable, Kafka has several parables about Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice of Isaac. But in one of them, he says that um, Abraham was disappointed with the world because it was so uniform. That Abraham um, felt that he was Abraham because he's disappointed with the world for being so uniform. And then Kafka simply remarks, and yet the world is not uniform as anyone can work out if they simply pick up a handful of world and look at it. So uniformity is death. And life is multiplicity and heterogeneity. And that's the thing that Wolf is celebrating, but it's also the thing that Mrs. Dalloway is celebrating. Mrs. Dalloway, the character, is celebrating. Um, Okay, so that's just a little bit of um, going back to um, those two um, works that we didn't have time for, but we don't have time for much. Um, let's look. So you guys um, have read, I feel absolutely certain, uh, the Divinity School Address and... Um, Whitman's Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking. Um, I think what we're going to do today is, we're, what we're doing this week, what we're doing with um, Dickinson, Whitman, and Emerson, are talking about the three figures who are really the three greatest American poets. Um, Emerson, not in his poetry, which is good, but not great, but in his essays, of which the Divinity School address is um, one of maybe 10 or 12 major, absolutely major essays by Emerson. Also in his journals, um, we are seeing one of the great American poets, um, writing in prose, but still one of the great American poets. Dickinson and Whitman um, were both strongly influenced by Emerson. Um, each of the three has a claim to be the title if you care about such things, and I actually do, um, just because it's useful to care about such things, not because there's truth to it. But each has a claim to being regarded as the greatest of American poets. Um, Dickinson, Whitman, and Emerson. Um, and um, 
Whitman didn't know about Dickinson. Emerson um, did a very little bit, but Dickinson um, was an extremely private person, published almost nothing in her lifetime, and only really became known um, at all at the end of the 19th century, and more so um, in the first quarter of the 20th century. Um, but she's extraordinary. As I say, she's heavy, heavily influenced by Emerson. The Divinity School address is Emerson at the age of 35. So he had gotten a degree in divinity from the Harvard Divinity School. And um, he was then asked to address the graduating class in 1838. Um, and the graduating class is tiny. Um, this was not a large address to hundreds or even dozens of people. It was to seven or eight people. Um, and it essentially destroyed Emerson's career as a preacher um, because people were so shocked by what he said. Um, so the Divinity School address is Emerson um, saying the things that are among the deepest things that he said, and what he essentially says, and what he was accused of atheism for saying, is that what we should learn from Jesus is that we are as divine as he is. That what he was was a person who understood the complete divinity of the human soul and that all of us were or could be like him. His great example was that he accepted this in a way that no one had accepted it before or possibly since. But that's all that it meant, that if you worship him as a god or as the son of god or as the, um, the um, prime figure in what Emerson calls a cult or cultus, you are misunderstanding everything that you should understand from him. So he, was, he, Emerson, was accused of atheism. He wasn't invited back to Harvard, even though he lived um, very close by for 30 years. Um, this was an extremely controversial thing, but a very powerful thing. Um, this view of the human mind, um, this view of the human soul, this view of what elsewhere he calls self-reliance, um, was in part um, the inspiration for the poetry that Whitman would write. And um, tomorrow I'm going to um, bring in a little bit from Whitman's most famous but very long poem, um, Song of Myself. Um, and in part an inspiration for Dickinson, who was far more austere than either Whitman or Emerson. Um, and in part derived from stuff that we've talked about earlier in this class about the sublime. Um, so if you'll recall what we said about the sublime when we were looking at Burke and when we were looking at Milton's Satan, the idea of the sublime is that it prefers, the way Burke describes it, is that it prefers intensity to positive pleasure. Um, the p one poem of the sublime we looked at um, and looked at in some detail was Shelley's poem Mont Blanc, and there's a whole lot in the Divinity School address that is like Mont Blanc. So I want to say a little bit more about the sublime and the way Emerson explicitly thought about it um, in thinking about um, what Kant, 
whom Emerson um, regarded himself as a follower of, said about the sublime. But the way to do that is to look at the first of the two Dickinson poems that I handed out, the one whose first line is, the brain is wider than the sky. In a sense, but only in a sense, that's the Divinity School address in 12 lines. Um, it may be more than the Divinity School Address in 12 lines. Um, it does deviate from it a little bit, but it is pretty close. So if you look at the poem, this is um, Dickinson, when she wrote her poems, used a lot of dashes as punctuation. And the dashes probably, there's all sorts of argument about what they meant. Um, when her poems were first published um, by her sister-in-law and by other people after she died, the dashes were edited out. But in um, the mid-20th century, they were, her poems were re-edited accurately from her manuscripts. Um, and the dashes were put back in. Um, the least we can say about them is that she put them in and that therefore we should notice them. That may be all we have to say about them. That is that in reading and perhaps in reciting the poems, although she didn't seem to do that very much, but, she, but in reading them, um, your eye should pause for a moment on the dashes. They have a sense of emphasis. That is that if you see the brain dash is wider than the sky, then emphasize the word brain. It's not the brain is wider than the sky. It's the brain, and then you have to pause. So notice the dashes as pauses in Dickinson. Um, I'm just saying that as a general principle for um, how to sound her poems out in your mind. The brain, that's the subject, the brain is wider than the sky for put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease and you beside. I'll read the whole poem, then we'll go through it. The brain is deeper than the sea. Notice no dash the second time. Don't, don't notice it as in, oh my goodness, what does that lack of a dash mean? I must interpret this. There's my paper. Um, although I'm generally very hospitable to papers like that. Um, not this time. Um, but just don't pause the second time, because she's already said her subject. The brain is deeper than the sea. For hold them blue to blue, the one the other will absorb as sponges buckets do. The brain is just the weight of God. For heft them pound for pound, and they will differ if they do as syllable from sound. Okay, so let's just go through this. What does it mean to say that the brain is wider than the sky? Yes? I mean, I think if you go on to read it, it's like um, the brain can understand the sky with these, as in the one the other will contain with these. Mm -hmm. um, so it's like it can capture more, and it's, it's literally wider because your thoughts can't be measured. Okay, so it's literally wider because your thoughts can't be measured and the sky can be measured. Um, the sky is 180 degrees of arc from horizon to horizon. So wider in that sense. Um, Maxi, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just going to say basically something similar to that. Like it's a limitless amount of just possibilities. Okay. Oh. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that you can look at the sky, you can look at other stuff. Good. Hannah, same thing. Yeah. It also feels, though, that she's saying something a little bit more literal. It's interesting that she says the brain, not the mind. And many people will actually remember this as the mind is wider than the sky. Um, but it's the brain is wider than the sky. So it's as though she's talking about the actual literal brain, not a brain in a jar, not the kind of thing you can see in an anatomy lab, but nevertheless the brain. And... Um, it might be something like this, that if you go out and look at the sky, then the entire sky, your little brain is looking at that thing. Your brain is four inches across in diameter. The sky is, you know, 30 miles, let's say, 40 miles. Um, and yet, that 40 miles is something that your brain can perceive. That is perception in some sense, has to be wider than the thing that it perceives, or it couldn't perceive it. If you're able to perceive something, then the perceiving instrument, the perceiving organ, the brain, has to contain its perception. And the only thing we know of the sky is the perception of the sky. It's not like, oh, there's a real sky, which is wider than the brain, and then there's my perception, but what's that? How do you know there's a real sky? You only have your perception of the sky. That is the real sky, is your perception of the sky. So to say the brain is wider than the sky is to say that anything in the world that we look at, we are capable of looking at. There's nothing you can know that can't be known, but there's also nothing that can be known that you can't know. Nothing that can be seen that you can't see. If the sky can be seen, then the brain can see it. And the brain has to be wider than what it sees. And so she goes on, for put them side by side, the one the other will contain with ease. And then that really interesting, and you decide. Who's the you? What are the possibilities? Yeah? It could be the reader. Okay, so um, I, well, if it's the reader, then, yeah, it could be the reader, um, because often yous in works of literature are the reader. Um, Taylor? Ladder? It could be God. Yeah. Um, capital Y-U makes it sound like God. We might expect a thou, though if it were God, but maybe not Dickinson, who tends to be formal with those she doesn't know well, and um, she's not going to be on easy and familiar terms with God. She's not sure she trusts him. That's just something you should know about her. Um, burglar, banker, father is what she calls him at one point. Burglar, banker, father. For her, those are three words going from bad to worse, just so you know. Burglar, banker, father. Um, yes? Well, I think more than the reader, it's the narrative. Um, and that could be whoever she's perceiving the sky with. Like, look up there. I can see that and also be aware of the presence simultaneously. So, because I can do that one plus that one, my mind is too integrated. 
Okay, good. Yeah, so I can see the sky and I can see you as well. What does it mean if she can see the you? Um, <clears throat> if the one the other will contain, that is the brain will contain the sky, what else will it contain? You. So what does that mean about containing? Notice that what she's saying is that my brain will contain you. So does the you have a brain? Why isn't the you bigger than her brain if the you has a brain as well? <coughs> Do you see the question? It's not, I, I don't think it's that hard to answer, but I think it's worth noticing that she does have a paradox here. And the paradox is my brain is wide enough to contain both you and the sky, that makes it wider than the things that it contains. That's what the word for means, that the brain is wider than what it contains. The way you prove that the brain is wider than the sky is that it can contain the sky. Therefore, the way you, what is implied by the fact that the brain contains you as well as the sky is that the brain is wider than you. So how does the you how is the you, whether the you is us or God, or there are other possibilities, um, how does the you, do we accept that? Would the you accept it? Hannah? You could say that the you can fit into uh, the narrow, in which case it's not really wider, or there is something that in the you um, does exceed another person's perception, and yet is not unperceivable because the you can perceive itself. Does that make sense? Can you say that one more time? Okay, so what we said is there's nothing that we can know about the sky except our own perception of it. We can modify that perception with various instruments. We can, we can use um, spectroscopes. We can use telescopes. We can use cameras. There are all sorts of things that we can do to extend our perception. But the only thing we can know about anything in the world, ultimately, is our perception of that thing. So there is nothing that we can say that it exceeds our capacity to understand it because then we would understand the fact that it exceeded our capacity to understand it, and we couldn't. If it exceeds our capacity to understand it, it exceeds our capacity to understand it. Um, except maybe another person, because they have their own capacity for understanding. Um, sorry, you were going to say something? Okay, good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so yeah, they, they might be thinking about death. Yeah, yeah, there's the sky, but they might just be thinking about death. Um, so they get very small and, and self, um, and, and shrunken into themselves. Good. Olivia, is that right? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. So the you could be her.
Okay, good. Maybe, maybe not, because she would still be self-containing. Um, but we are aware of ourselves, so maybe we are self-containing. Maybe that's part of her point. Um, but what Olivia is saying is, uh, is that the you can be the kind of you that we have in thought. Like, oh my God, you've done it again. You're going to be late again. You've really got to work on those papers and get them in on time so that you'll do well in your life. The way we talk to ourselves that way. Or it could just be, you know what it's like when, you know, that feel when you're late for class and you can't stand it because you love the class so much. Um, right? You all have those status updates all the time about how awful that is. Um, so the you is a generalizing you, but, you're gen but it's a way of saying I, but I think you'll feel the same way. Um, so you know what it's like. Um, the, you know, look, look at the brain. It's wider than the sky. It has room for the sky, and it has room for you. You know how that is? So it could be that kind of you, which means both me and everyone. Me as a representation of everyone. Yeah, Angela. I feel like while the line, like the, the line that says the one, the other will contain, while it mentions the word contain, I feel like when it says the these and you decide, the decide kind of makes it neutral again. So I feel like then it's referring back to saying like it's another brain that's able to comprehend each other. So it's like it's not exactly containing each other because that's why they're beside. Mm -hmm. So I see it more as like it does contain, but then I think that's not that's I think that's right. There's something you should notice here about the rhyme, which is that she's rhyming side with beside, which is something Dickinson will do a lot. She does a lot of slant rhymes, she does a lot of off rhymes, and she does a lot of rhymes that for anyone but Dickinson don't count as rhymes. Um, so to rhyme side with beside is a little bit off, and yet we don't quite notice it because all her words are so intense. But you could say that she's putting side side by side with beside, or she's putting beside beside side. And there is a sense that you get in the repetition of in the repetitive rhyme, which isn't a true rhyme. Um, you do get that that feeling. She's really good at making you feel the side-by-sideness of it. There are two items right there. They aren't integrated into each other. And, I, th and I, th I think that's what you're saying, Angela, right? That there's a way in which you feel like the brain is just going to take it all in. Yes, I'm the brain. It's my world. That's great. But actually, there are these two items, and they don't quite come together the way they might in Wolf. Good. Yeah. I actually kind of think the opposite of that. Um, I think that... If she's saying the brain is the brain can perceive the sky because you can look at it and know what it is, and then she's saying the brain can perceive you, which is representing another brain, that that's like a negative social comment. It's like pessimistic, I guess, uh -huh. in the sense that um, each individual looks at others and sees them as this contained thing. Right. That like they can totally understand, but like the irony the irony of it is that everyone's looking at everyone else the same way. Yeah. That nobody will ever actually be on the same plane of understanding with one another because we all think that. Okay, good. Um, or the other possibility, the more optimistic version of that pessimism. And um, it's not quite a paradox, but it, it sounds paradoxical. It's something like what Emerson is saying. Yeah, I know. It's something like what Emerson is saying, um, which is that you shouldn't get your doctrine from someone else, that it all has to come from yourself, and that has to be true of every person. 
that every person should be able to contain the sky and you beside, that you should get provocation from others, but not instruction from others. Okay, we'll pick it up here, finish the poem, finish the other poem, um, that is Snow Beneath His Chilly Softness, and if you haven't um, reread Out of the Cradle Endlessly Rocking 400 times, then reread it. All right, see you guys tomorrow.